Good. So, this afternoon I thought we would talk about one of my favourite subjects, because I get happy talking about this, and that is called the gradual training. So the gradual training is not emphasised much by most teachers, but it's one of the most important and often repeated teachings in the whole of the Pali Canon. So you've seen that I have this book, and there's lots and lots more books that make up the Pali Canon, which are the Buddha's teachings, as close as we can get them. Um, And this is really wonderful because it shows the whole context, like a much wider context for the practice of kindness and for the whole path, basically. So it almost runs a parallel to the Eightfold Noble Path, but it gives a lot more um, information about how to apply these teachings in a practical way. And you can also see the gradual training as a kind of um, progressive refinement of happiness. So happiness is emphasised, and it talks about the happiness as which are aloof from sensual pleasures and sensuality, so the happiness is of deep meditation, which are the goal of this training, but also the happinesses that are available a long, long time before then. So we can start to cultivate these in our everyday life, long before we sit on the cushion, and in that way this is a preparation for the practice. Yeah? So often we come to the cushion without having done any preparation, and then we look at our mind and it's kind of all over the place, a bit grumpy and... But if we learn how to practice you know, the whole of the path and apply it in everyday life, then we've already done so much of the work before we even come to sit in meditation. So another way you can perceive this is a, a kind of um, gradual overcoming of what we call the five hindrances, which we touched on earlier. Yeah? So the five hindrances are those things which obscure clear seeing, so they obscure mindfulness. It's true that you can be mindful of them to an extent, but most of the time they invade the mind, and at that point we basically lose any kind of objectivity, and what we see is seen through with quite a bit of bias and quite a bit of cloudiness. Yeah? So the whole path, in a way, can be seen also as trying to undermine these hindrances so that we actually have a chance to see things as they really are. And the Buddha always said that the proximate cause for seeing things as they really are is deep meditation. So that means jhana, that means deep samadhi, where the mind is completely free from thinking and is very powerful and luminous. So this may seem you know, like a long way for most of us, but it's actually not, and it doesn't really matter as long as you're on the path towards it. Yeah? I think Bhikkhu Bodhi was quoted as saying, there's only two requirements for the path. One is to start walking and the other is to continue. So as long as we're on it, (laughs) it's going in one direction and we're not really going to fail, especially if our motivation is right. Yeah. So the motivation is key. I mean, I guess until I'd had some experience in practice, particularly with one Dharma friend, I always assumed that people came to the practice, you know, out of compassion, out of a wish to understand suffering and that that necessarily implied having to meet that suffering. So I always felt that as soon as you close your eyes, you're in touch with your experience, your suffering, your sensations, your emotional world, you know, the happiness as well, the joy as well, and that everybody was working in that way. But after years and years of um, association with a particular friend, she uh, said something very shocking to me. And she said, oh, I want to practice and transcend myself because I hate myself. And I was, ooh... I was so shocked by that. But I think it's not probably as uncommon as we may think. And that led me to question her. I said, but when you sit down and close your eyes and you know, feel you're in a world, 
doesn't that bring you in contact with your emotions and you know doesn't it help you to see them as impermanent and make peace with them and she said no I you know they're impermanent so I don't have to bother with them they're non-self so it was grasping the teachings in the wrong way it's something we call um spiritual what do they call it either premature transcendence or spiritual bypass yeah so premature transcendence means you're trying to get to the goal which is free from suffering without actually meeting that suffering yeah and the spiritual bypass is something like taking these terms such as non-self and using them to actually justify things like anger and negativity well i'm angry but you know it's not me it's it's just a phenomena but the point is that if you really understand that there's no self in there you won't be grasping at that there won't be anything to get angry <laughs> yeah because there's no being who's getting upset there's no sort of solid sense of self so usually anger comes when we take things personally so that's just one um you know danger i guess of not having the motivation right and as i said before in the morning talk um this is the sutta where it coins the term um all beings desire happiness and recoil from pain and i think that's so lovely so in this particular sutta the buddha's talking to somebody called pesa who's an elephant tamer or something like this and and he asks him what kind of people please you is it the person who torments oneself and torments others or torments oneself and only or torments others only or one who torments and tortures neither oneself nor others and of course he says well you know the person who doesn't torment oneself or others pleases my mind because all beings want their own happiness yeah so this is a great motivation and from that when you come into contact with the teachings confidence can arise that okay there is suffering we want an end to suffering so here's a buddha who comes along and teaches us how so the buddha kind of activates that wishiness to be free by showing us where we're suffering and then he points out the path yeah so once we have that confidence in the path that's the first step yeah. so what's number 2 so from the confidence comes the contentment i think oh no not yet so yeah from confidence i mean in this particular sutta it's talking about the path for a monastic but basically the next step is to simplify Yeah so once we realize that we are suffering and some of the causes for that we realize that okay having a lot craving for a lot owning a lot having a very busy life is actually a cause for suffering so there's a beautiful sutta called the metta sutta which is all about loving kindness and in that it says one should be contented and easily satisfied and not busy with duties and frugal in their ways really lovely words So we start to simplify because we realize happiness doesn't come from outside, you know. So why are we wasting so much energy trying to attain and acquire? I've often seen that the biggest houses have the biggest gates on the front, you know, and all this security and wire and ooh, looks so horrible, you know. But just now a friend of mine sent me a photo of where he's living and it's like a little veranda, like a long veranda actually on a big house in uh in Nepal in a mountain village. And he's just sleeping on a corner of that with a little um fabric curtain across completely open to the elements with this like flat sort of mat on the floor and that's it <laughs> the simple and basic life and we can start to find joy in that kind of life so in the gradual training it talks about simplifying and then the next step is to develop virtue and one of the reasons i really love this sutta is that it doesn't only speak about virtue as um a restraint from doing bad but it talks about the precepts in a really beautiful way like the actual opposite 
So the opposite of killing, for example, is that one abides. I'll read the actual words because they're very beautiful. So it says, uh, Abandoning the killing of living beings, they abstain from killing living beings with rod and weapon laid aside, gentle and kindly. They abide compassionate to all living beings. Yeah. So this is actually an action. It's called charita sila, not just varita, which is like an abstinence. And, you know, how many times do you see like a little insect in the room and you think, oh, well, it's okay, it'll probably be all right, or actually take the care to go and protect it and say, okay, maybe I'll put it outside. Or I remember doing that in Perth once. I took um, some kind of insect and sort of put it, I think I was on a vehicle and I put it over the side of the vehicle into the bush and somebody really um, scolded me. They said, you know, it'll bang its head and get a headache. Would you like to be like (laughs) chucked into the forest? (laughs) So even that, you know, even when we're trying to protect something, we can do it really gently, not to harm. So we're actually compassionate and protecting life. And then it says, abandoning the taking of what is not given, they abstain from taking what is not given. Taking only what is given and expecting only what is given. So this is getting again into the mind. We actually don't even expect anything until it actually arrives with us. So this really starts to undermine greed and longing and the sense of lack. And the next one is not stealing, one abides in purity. Oh yeah, is that the same one? Yeah, that's the same one. By not stealing, they abide in purity. And then abandoning in celibacy, one observes celibacy. And again, this is for the monastics, but of course, you know, in terms of the lay life, this means being trustworthy, basically, being committed. If you're in a relationship, then you honour that commitment and don't play around with other people. You know, how devastating is it if somebody cheats on you? Or even if you suspect that and you can't have a clear conversation, this can be really disturbing for the mind. So all of these things are, you know, helping us to settle the mind and be able to sit down without remorse, without regret. And then the next one is about speech, which I like the best. And I'll just read it straight through, because there are four different kinds of speech here to abandon, and it talks about the opposites, which are very beautiful. So abandoning false speech, one abstains from false speech, speaks the truth, adheres to truth, is trustworthy and reliable one who is no deceiver of the world. So, yes, it would be great if this was in politics, wouldn't it? (laughs) Abandoning malicious speech, one abstains from malicious speech, does not repeat elsewhere what they have heard here in order to divide those people from these, nor repeats to these people what they have heard elsewhere in order to divide these people from those. Thus, you are one who reunites those who are divided, a promoter of friendships who enjoys concord, rejoices in concord, delights in concord, a speaker of words that promote concord. Isn't that just lovely? When I read it, I already start to feel so happy just at the idea that you can do something active to create harmony in this world, you know, by the way you speak to people, by the way you think about them and reflect on them. And there's a really beautiful example in the suttas of the sort of ideal way to live together, in the Buddha's day, there were three monks and um, they were living alone. Maybe they had some kind of close friendship. And the Buddha came along and said, how do you live together? And they say, oh, we um, regard each other with kindly eyes. And we keep on reflecting what a gain it is for me to live with such virtuous companions. What a, ge- a great gain it is. 
And then even further than that, they say that they are three in body but one in mind. So they put aside what they want to do and do what the others want to do. And then they go into detail about that, which I'll bring up later. But basically, they always make sure that everybody's needs are taken care of before they then go off to meditate in solitude. So I just find this really beautiful because it's showing how we all need to support each other. And that in itself is a practice of generosity, it's a practice of kindness, but also it's undermining this sense of self. Yeah, that it's me and my practice at all costs, and it doesn't really matter if that person's bowl is leaking because they used to have these like sort of lacquer bowls, or that person's robe is falling apart. They'll first attend to that and then only go and meditate. So that gives a kind of sense of everybody's taken care of, and there's a very safe space, a very friendly space to practice. So that's about the harmony. And then abandoning harsh speech, one abstains from harsh speech. Speak such words that are gentle, pleasing to the ear and lovable, as go to the heart, a courteous, desired by many and agreeable to many. Isn't that nice? <laughs> Abandoning gossip, one abstains from gossip, speaks at the right time, speaks what is fact, speaks on what is good, speaks on the Dhamma and the discipline. At the right time, speech, speaks such words as are worth recording, Reasonable, moderate and beneficial. So again, a lot of respect for other people and their time and whether they're in a position to sort of hear what you've got to say and offload onto them. And this also comes up in other places in the suttas when it talks about giving feedback. Particularly the right time is important, you know, not to sort of start to criticise someone, say, in public or when they're tired or upset already, but always to approach them kindly and ask, is it now the right time to mention something to you, you know, that's been disturbing me? And then to speak gently and to make sure the intention is with metta. Because sometimes we think, I'll give people some feedback because it's good for them, right? But actually it's because you're irritated. It's not really good for them at all. So this idea of checking in with them first, you know, are you in a position to sort of allow me to say something that, you know, may help, may not help? And another place in the suttas, it actually says that you shouldn't um, criticise anybody if you have the same fault yourself. So that's very interesting because, I mean, I have enough faults that there's really no way I can criticise anyone else. <laughs> so it's about integrity, you know, really being honest with ourselves and uh, working on ourselves the fir- first. Ajahn Chah apparently said you look at others a maximum of 5% of the time and yourself 95 In other words, your own... Uh, things that you struggle with, yeah? I mean, we care about others 100% of the time, but this means in terms of finding fault. Yeah, because finding fault isn't a very skillful way to use our mind. So this is about the uh, virtue aspect, and I think this is just a very beautiful place that it's described, and it's, you know, described throughout the suttas in a similar way. But um, the next part, which is even more interesting in a way, is that... uh, It starts to refine the mental conduct. So this is about bodily and verbal conduct. But the next one is called sense restraint, which sounds, again, quite unpopular. I think restraint is a word a bit like renunciation. It's a bit uh, not very kind of attractive. But actually what sense restraint means is not trying to avert your eyes from something that causes lust or, or even move away from someone who causes anger. You know, it's not about avoiding anything. Sometimes in retreats, we're really kind of focused on the ground. Once I was on a retreat in um, India, and I put my laundry in to wash, and about two weeks later, I realised it hadn't come out. 
And I was like, where's my laundry? I thought, well, never mind, I'm supposed to be simple, so I just keep wearing the same thing and wash one part of my outfit every so often, you know. And then right towards the end of the retreat, I kind of looked up a tiny bit and I saw people going down a different path. And I thought, oh, what's that? And then I saw this big, like, table with all the laundry. <laughs> and, I'd, and mine had been there for the last two weeks, but I hadn't looked. So this was, I mean, it was sort of helpful to be really within myself, but it wasn't uh, necessarily wise. And it's, in a way, a little bit too easy. Because on retreat, it, you know, we can protect ourselves from things that maybe stimulate the defilements, the negativities in our mind. But how about when we go back outside, you know? Or even in a retreat like this, at lunchtime, you might find someone standing a bit too close or somebody's kind of being inconsiderate in whatever way. Or you just get a sense of someone reminds you of somebody who upset you a long time ago and and, and something starts in the mind. So what are we to do at this time? So the Buddha didn't say that we have to avoid it altogether. But what he did say was that we have to use our senses in a way that leads to the wholesome states increasing, yeah, and doesn't allow the unwholesome states to come in and to remain. And also, if they have come in, that we can abandon those unwholesome states. So it says here that, uh, on seeing a form with the eye, one does not grasp but its signs and features, since if you left the eye faculty unguarded, bad states of basically craving and aversion would invade. Yeah, so this, the craving and aversion is a synonym again. It's like a shorthand for the five hindrances. So we're trying not to allow those five hindrances to come up in the first place. And when it says not to grasp at the sign and features, it sort of means not to dwell on things about that person that make you irritated or upset, but to look at the other side of the person. Yeah? So it's not that you avoid them or deny them, but you just look at the other side. And I think this is really wonderful because it's the field of where we realise that we're creating the world through our perception. You know, We're actually conditioned to see things in a certain way, but there are other ways to see things that we maybe haven't thought about. I mean, in a place like this, everybody's obviously very well-intentioned. That's why you're here. You, know, you want to practice kindness. Hopefully you came because you liked the title of the retreat, which was about that, you know? And so there's not a lot that we can really find fault about with each other. But our habit pattern, unfortunately, especially in the West, is to look for what's wrong and try to improve it instead of looking for what's right. So it's kind of this simile of watering the weeds, (laughs) you know, or trying to pull out the weeds, whereas the other way around is to water the flowers. So why don't we spend time doing that or water the Bodhi tree, water the best part of a person? Because what you see in somebody is usually what they show you back. Right? The more you look and see their goodness, the more they feel, oh, maybe there is something in me to value and respect, and they tend to show that side. They first have to see it in themselves. So you can help them do that, and we can help ourselves see our own goodness too. So one of the stories that I read recently was about um, a Hasidic, is that the right way to say it? A Hasidic monk in a monastery in goodness knows when. It was just a story. But I wanted to change it because there's never any stories about Buddhist nuns, so let's make some her story. (laughs) Um, So this is about Buddhist nuns in a monastery. And unfortunately in this monastery, all the nuns were getting older and, you know, the, the older generations were starting to die away, but they weren't managing to get any new recruits at all. So it's a bit like my monastery in Oxford. It's not that I'm so old and dying off, but I still haven't got any, any recruits. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, unfortunately, you know, they were worried about what would happen to this monastery because no one was coming in. Maybe it's too old-fashioned, nobody's interested in the spiritual life anymore. And they were really despairing and sort of going down the path of decadence and despondency and everything was falling apart. So they decided to ask one of the elders from a different borough about what to do. And this old monk came along, or old nun came along, and said, well, yeah, I haven't really got any advice for you, but remember that the Buddha is among you. <laughs> and they all looked at each other shocked. The Buddha's one of us? Oh, my goodness. So they started looking at each other in a completely different way. It's like, one of us is the Buddha. We don't know who it is. I mean, obviously, it's not the Buddha, but it's an enlightened nun. You know, so one of us is an enlightened nun. So they started to regard each other quite differently. Like the lazy old nun who never was really good for much, sitting in the corner all day. Well, maybe she's just really relaxed and chilled out, you know, not kind of busy and agitated like the rest of us. Or that bossy nun who's always telling people what to do. Maybe she's actually quite wise and she, she knows what's for our good, you know. Or maybe, I don't know, who else you get in monasteries. Uh, haven't had many bad experiences so far. <laughs> so they started looking at each other quite differently, and not only <clears throat> maybe being blind to the faults, but actually seeing the faults as virtues. So really turning it around. And little by little, things started to change, because they were regarding each other with the kind of great compassion and respect due to a Buddha. And guess what happened? Slowly people started coming back, the visitors started coming back, new monastics started coming in, just because they learned to see each other anew. Yeah? So it changed their whole life. And I just find that a very beautiful story, because we can do this. You know, we create our world. The Buddha said the world is basically starts in the mind. The mind's responsible. It's the forerunner of everything that arises. So we can learn to use our mind in a different way. Take sickness, for example. This year, I don't know, some of you might know me. I don't want you to get a shock, but... <laughs> but um, I had a, a mole on my arm for years and years, which looked kind of unusual, but I thought, yeah, that's my quirky little mole. But it started to grow a bit weird, and it was only two weeks before the rains retreat, just, just this year. And uh, so I spent my rains retreats in, in Australia. And I had to go because I have no one to feed me over here, and this is my time to meditate for three months with my teacher, you know. So I had this um, mole. And I knew straight away something's up. So I had it diagnosed, and it was a melanoma. And uh, it was very interesting. At first, when they told me that, I, I didn't feel much because I knew. So I was like, okay, good, you know, so now I can decide what to do. But I had to wait until I could have it taken off, of course. And in that time, it was so interesting, you know. I went between different emotions. And one of the emotions was a kind of visceral fear, it wasn't something I created mentally in my mind because I had a feeling, you know, I'd get it taken off, hopefully it'd be okay. But, you know, sometimes I'd be working and I'd stand up and I'd just get this woo all the way through the body, like little flutters, you know. But then at other times I noticed there was a real sense of sort of heightened awareness as if everything just became much more vivid in my life. And one thing that really surprised me was that I realised how much I value the position I'm in to be able to be of benefit for not just to myself through practice, but to others through my project, you know, to start this little monastery in England. 
And I hadn't realised that, you know, I'd focused on sort of how much hard work it was and will we ever get there? I don't know if it's going to work. And, you know, with good motivation, with a lot of gratitude and a feeling that I really want this to happen. But I didn't really realise how dear it had become to me until this happened. So then I thought, well, if I've got only a few years left, because the prognosis is not that great for melanoma, especially if it's like between zero and six weeks, apparently it can become fatal. So watch your morals, everybody. (laughs) Um, Not to scare you. But, uh, you know, I really didn't know at that point what would happen. But I thought, you know, if I don't have long to live, I'm not only going to practice for myself, I'm still going to try and make sure this project works and that it can be continued when I'm not there. So that gave me such a renewed sense of appreciation for everything that I'm doing and what I have in my life. And even the word exquisite came to my mind, which was really weird. I had this sort of, like, view of life, sort of your whole life, like a movie almost, but it's your life. And I just thought, what a life. (laughs) Not in any kind of ego way, but just in the sense that I'd done what I wanted to do and I'd taken risks, I've been brave, you know. I've tried to follow my heart and whatever the outcome, you have to let it go at some point, right? And I just realised, yeah, it's been a good life. And also just a feeling of love because when you feel vulnerable like that, you know, you really depend on others. And there weren't many guests. At one point I was on my own for two days and just sort of trying to be with the fear and, you know, what would happen if I had to have, like, the chemo and all the rest of the stuff. And so I was on my own and it did feel vulnerable. But when there were people there, I just felt completely showered in love by them and also toward them. There was just this real sense that that's the only thing that matters, actually. It's the only thing that matters, really, is how we treat each other, you know? So it was a very beautiful experience, and I mean, I'm very fortunate because I went back and it hadn't spread. They took it off and did the biopsy and it hadn't spread, so I'm all right for now. (laughs) And none of us know what's in there and when it's going to grow again or something else comes or you just get hit by a train or, I don't know, maybe not a train, but... You could fall off the train on the way home. (laughs) Fall into the sea. Apparently that's happened. But anyway, just to say... (laughs) Just to say, you know, there's so many different blessings and gifts we can get out of any situation. You know, you think, oh gosh, that kind of diagnosis is a nightmare. But when it happens, it changes things and it gives you just such a renewed appreciation for what you have in life. So if anyone could keep looking at things this way, it'd be great. So this sort of way of using our mind, it kind of circles around mindfulness because we've got to be aware of what's happening in our mind, first of all, in order to kind of bring things back and say, okay, this negative thing's coming up, how can I look at it differently? And then we choose from a range of perceptions. And I wanted to particularly go into um, how to work with anger a little bit because obviously kindness is one of the antidotes. It's the best antidote to anger. Yeah, and all of this is about being kind. I mean, everything we do to try and undermine suffering comes from kindness. You know, it's wise not to suffer and it's wise to be kind. So, looking at anger, there are different ways to deal with that as well in the Buddhist suttas. And one of them, one of the similes that the Buddha gives is that of a pond. So, a pond is overgrown with weeds. And this is like a person whose body and mind, their actions of body and mind are quite impure and quite harmful and hurtful to other people. So the Buddha says, um, if you want to drink the water, you have to move the weed aside and then you find the pure water underneath. So this is a little bit similar to, you know, looking for the good in a person. The other way I I sort of sometimes reflect on is just having compassion to a person who is behaving in unskillful ways. 
because they often don't know what they're doing and how much harm they're creating. Or they've been very hurt themselves and they don't realise, you know, they don't really know another way. There's this nice little image I saw recently on social media and it was um, a man like at the top of a, a mountain with a big boulder on his back and he had his hand down and this woman was dangling from his hand. She'd fallen off the edge. And in the side of the cliff there was this little hole and a snake was coming out. And the snake was trying to get the woman, and the man was being crushed under this boulder. And the man was thinking, why doesn't this woman try and climb up? I'm holding on with all my life. And she was thinking, why doesn't this man above me pull, pull? And she didn't see the rock and the pressure he was under, and he didn't see the danger she was in, that there was this snake about to bite, you know, if she put her foot into that hole in the rock to climb up. So it's very interesting that sometimes it's easier to have compassion when we know what somebody's been through. But how about giving people the benefit of the doubt? You know, We might not know what they've been through, but we can imagine that most of us have had our struggles and sufferings, maybe traumas, maybe abuse. We just don't know. There was this one nun I once met, and I said uh, it was breakfast time, and she sneezed, and I said, bless you. And she said, I'm not going to die of a sneeze. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like okay <laughs> whatever and and so I had this idea like I didn't react to it but I thought oh she's really grumpy you know and I, I sort of thought that's not very good for a nun <laughs> and then later on I heard what had happened in her life and that she'd lost a child and it completely changed the way I saw it you know suddenly all this compassion came up I thought I cannot imagine that I haven't had children in this life but I don't know somehow I've always had a sense that that would be the most horrendous thing that could ever happen to anybody and my mum's always told me that and you know that's always been in my mind when I've been on my dangerous adventures and stuff so when I heard that I thought yeah isn't it funny that I had to know that before I could feel the compassion you know why do we have to know (laughs) Because we're all the same. I mean, if you meet your own mind and you see the sort of mental knots you can get yourself in. Sometimes people think if everything's okay in your life, everything, you know, you're all right, why should you have suffered? But I know from my life, you know, in my teens, things were on the surface fine, but I went through huge angst and a search for meaning and a real sense of, like, desperation, actually. Why am I here and what on earth is the point if there's so much suffering? How am I going to find a meaning to this? And that was what set me off on my path. But if I would have explained that to anybody at the time, they'd have said, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you grateful? You've got a nice family, you've got a best friend, you're doing well at school, blah, blah, blah. But suffering's not something that, you know, has to have a reason. It's enough we're alive, we're sensitive beings. You know, we're vulnerable. Even when things don't go wrong as such. So it's just this compassion. And then the next thing the Buddha says is to reflect frequently on the harm of anger. Am I talking too long? Oh, I am. Gosh, I haven't even got into it yet. (laughs) To reflect on the harm of anger frequently, you know, that it basically doesn't need anywhere good. So I'll go through this quickly because the other part I wanted to just mention was um, looking at anger towards ourself. (laughs) I'm glad you see the funny side. Yeah, so so a lot of us have this sense, you know, that there's something kind of deficient and not quite worthy, not quite good enough about us, right? I mean, I'm sure I still have that. It's, it's healing. It's very nice to have a spiritual teacher who never sees things in such a way and just sees your potential. But I think, you know, this this is a problem in meditation at certain stages when the happiness starts to come up. 
because happiness should come off in meditation and often one of the biggest hindrances to allowing it is a feeling that I don't deserve it or a feeling of guilt yeah and I don't know maybe it's part of our culture that we're not able to let go of guilt but sometimes forgiveness is really important we need to learn to forgive ourselves and I did want to tell you a story about that but I think I should probably not talk too much longer but basically yeah I read a little book by Desmond Tutu and he said you know that there are these different stages of forgiveness and the first one is to name no tell the story first of all so first we have to acknowledge what happened and face that and then to grieve he calls it naming the hurt, but rather than say naming, I'd rather just say you feel the emotion of it, you know, and you go through that. And then to, what was it next? I think to um, forgive, to actually grant the forgiveness. And the last one was to decide whether you want to renew the relationship or, or not, yeah, or what did he say, release the relationship. Now, obviously, towards yourself, you can't release the relationship, so you have to renew it. And this is good, because, <laughs> you know, we can practice with ourselves, we're always going to be with ourselves, so you've always got a subject <laughs> to practice your forgiveness on. Yeah? And again, just learning to talk kindly to yourself. You know, the other thing is this inner tyrant, this critical voice that comes up, oh, it's not going anywhere in my meditation, why is everyone else doing okay, it's been 20 years, it's been 40 years, you know, <laughs> I'm still the same... This is really just the inner tyrant talking. In Buddhism, it's called Mara. And the way that the Buddhist nuns in the past used to face it was to just say, I know you, Mara. In other words, oh, yeah, that's you, and I'm not paying attention to you. You know, This is a phenomena. It's nothing to do with me. And if you want to, you can actually turn it around and speak back to that critic and say, hey, that's not very nice. Actually, I'm doing quite well, and anyway, I'm content with where I'm at. So we have to learn to speak back and not just to be pushed around by these inner voices. Yeah? And also with the meditation, to learn to relate to our meditation object with kindness and with gentleness. Not demanding that the breath should be different than it is or that it should be there at least, you know. And if it's there, it should stay for more than two, three breaths because it can do what it wants, actually. The breath comes when it's ready to come. It's not up to you. Our job is to prepare the soil, so to speak. So this is the way to do it. Put in all those beautiful qualities into the mind. And then when the breath comes, it wants to stay because your mind's ready. So the next stage after this is, um, is the sati so this is where mindfulness comes in, sort of around the sense restraint. It's kind of circling with it, but it's only now that the person is ready to go into seclusion because they have a sufficient amount of awareness through the practices they've already cultivated. So we don't just go off into like long retreat before we've done any preparation or have a good foundation of virtue. Otherwise, you'll just struggle, and there's no need for it. We can practice in everyday life and prepare ourselves, you know. And then we have a much more positive approach and attitude to meditation when it comes time to sit. And because the hindrances have been weakened so much by now, and also the Buddha talks about happiness that arises, like the happiness of virtue is a blameless bliss, and the happiness of sense restraint, he says, is unsullied bliss. So it's a kind of happiness that's starting to come from inside. It's not dependent on nice sight, sound, smell, taste, touch. It's much more about the mind, you know, that your mind is becoming pure and clear and, and happy. It's getting some energy. And at this point, you've got a chance to abandon the hindrances altogether and enter into the deep meditation. So again, this parallels with the Eightfold Path. You know, sense restraint is similar to right effort, and after right effort, the right mindfulness, after that, the right stillness. So this is the point where the hindrances are abandoned, and then we have a chance to enter into these very deep states of meditation, 
And after we do, then the Buddha says the mind is soft, it's malleable, which I love, and it's fit for work. It's free from bias. And it's not invested or vested in any particular outcome. So it's not afraid or biased in terms of what will arise. And it's at this point in the path, the Buddha teaches again and again, that we have a chance to actually see things as they are. Until then, there's just too much obscuration, too much bending of the truth and too much interference yeah, to really see things as they are. So we can all assume that as long as we've not entered these deep meditations, we're not seeing the whole picture. It's not that the insights aren't helpful, but the insights have to be helpful in the sense that they can help to undermine these hindrances so that our minds do become clearer and the mindfulness becomes empowered so that it's really ready to see things in an objective way. Yeah? So all of these factors of the path, living in harmony, cultivating virtue, using the senses in a wise way, they all lead towards a stilling and towards a clarifying of the mind clearing of the mental clutter that we have in there yeah, so we can see things differently so I think I've talked long enough and I think it might be nice what time is it to do some meditation so we'll probably how do people feel because it's 15 minutes uh, over or something 10 minutes over um, would you like to do a shorter sitting or a shorter walking who wants a shorter sitting and who wants a shorter walking? More. Okay. Well, if anybody wants to um, just, you know, take a break, that's fine by me. Absolutely fine if you don't want to sit so much. But we'll just continue otherwise with the regular length of sitting. Uh, yeah. And then there'll be a little bit of walking. Good. So please do what you feel you need to do. That's really important. just give a little bit of guidance for this to set you off. <clears throat> so the Buddha talked about a practice which is called recollecting one's own goodness. So it's not only about living a virtuous life and taking that for granted, but actually bringing up the good qualities in yourself and reflecting on those. <coughs> so just settling into your body, first of all. And when you're ready, I invite you to reflect on something, some little act of kindness, or perhaps a quality that you tend and cultivate in your heart that you can feel happy about.
be something you did caused another person to smile or relax or thank you. How did that feel? How did you feel? Bring to mind that occasion. See if you can get a felt sense of the effect of goodness, kindness, virtue. This is not about pride or ego, it's just looking at cause and effect. Showing the mind, look mind, this is what happens. This is how kindness feels. This is how generosity feels. This is how gratitude feels. See if you can imbue your mindfulness with this kindness, as though mindfulness is a medium through which kindness can flow, maybe to parts of the body, or to any experience in the body or mind. Becoming aware and adding kindness. Making sure the relationship between the knower and the known is very pure. No more fighting. Make an armistice with your mind. Putting peace in that space between the knower and the known. So you were smiling at your inner world, befriending your body, befriending your mind.
as your body and your mind relax into this present moment. Notice the joy, the simplicity, the peace of this moment. Maybe not a perfect moment, but it's good enough. When you regard it with gratitude, this moment starts to look more than good enough. When you treat something as a friend, it wants to stay.
as the mind quietens, the breath may come and visit. If this happens naturally, allow the breath in. Without pulling it in, just gently welcome it and find out what kind of attention, what kind of touch is needed to hold it very gently, as though it were a little bird. Very timid, fragile, very humble. Maybe a little bit afraid of how you've treated it in the past. So just like a bird, if you hold it too tightly, you'll crush it, or it'll struggle to fly away too loosely, it also flies away. See if you can give it that gentle but caring touch as your mind meets the breath. And if the mind's not ready, that's fine. Just keep making peace, being kind and being gentle with every moment. Noticing the delight in every moment.
So instead of ringing the bell, I'm just going to invite those who would like to continue with the meditation to carry on. If you'd like to join the scheduled walking session, have walking for about 25 minutes and then come back to sit. So please choose what your mind wants to do. Ask your mind. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.